remember when I was first exposed to the idea of God. I wasn't raised in a church-going family, but I attended a private Lutheran elementary school for one year in the fourth grade. Whenever it was that I began to wrestle with creationism, I remember being baffled by the idea that God had existed forever. I must have encountered this claim from someone in authority because I didn't take a skeptical posture to it. I accepted the claim as a matter of fact, and then broke my brain trying to comprehend its implications. In my adolescence, I dropped my belief in God and began a journey toward being a skeptic and an empiricist, but I didn't really escape the problem, did I? The paradox of origins, if I may call it that, remains. If the universe began at some point under some set of conditions, then what came before it to set up those conditions? And whatever that was, what came before that and before that? Either there is no ultimate origin, which is the original problem I wrestled with as a kid, or everything literally came from nothing, which is counterintuitive to the extreme. If we take the idea of God as creator literally, then we inhabit a universe in which consciousness precedes physics. That is to say that mind existed prior to anything else, the mind of God, the ultimate unified expression of consciousness. At some point, this mind, which it goes without saying has the power of will, dreamed up the physical universe and made it so. And I'll be damned if he didn't declare that it was good. An account like this is almost necessary to take an idealist perspective on consciousness. According to idealism, the universe is composed of consciousness. There is no physical reality. The opposite position is something like realism. And of course, Descartes took a middle road with his dualism, postulating that there are two coexisting realms, those of mind stuff and those of physical stuff. If we are to reason seriously about the origins of consciousness in our universe, we have three overall frameworks to consider. Either consciousness came first, consciousness came along, or consciousness emerged later. Roughly speaking, the first possibility is theism. There was God, or unity, or whatever, and then there was a physical universe. We can't speak to whether that God existed forever prior to the universe. In fact, it's silly to try to do so, because according to physics, time was created right along with space at the moment of origin. Okay, that's idea number one. Mind, then matter. The second idea, roughly speaking, is panpsychism. Mind and matter are both creations of the origin. Consciousness is baked right into the cake at its foundation, just like the strong nuclear force and the weak nuclear force and time and space and gravity. I think I've said enough about panpsychism, so I won't go into that today. It might be more fun to compare and contrast the other two possibilities. The third idea is that matter came first and mind later. This is physicalism. Consciousness is an emergent property that requires the formation of complex systems. In its favor, we can observe that the human brain is very complex and that we are indeed conscious. Let's begin by thinking about idealism. I'll use A.C. Grayling's The History of Philosophy and start with Hegel. Grayling writes, quote, The term Hegel used to describe his philosophical outlook is absolute idealism, denoting his conviction that ultimate reality, as it is in itself, is mental. In less developed states of consciousness, mind does not realize that it constitutes reality. It thinks reality is independent of itself and that our perception and reason are instruments for discovering the nature of that independent reality. The failure of these instruments to grasp the nature of reality as it is in itself is what led Kant to say that they can operate only in relation to the world as it appears to us, given that the way it appears to us 
is in large part the result of how the mind configures it. But when mind arrives at the point where it realizes that all reality is its own construction, it ceases to yearn after further knowledge, for there is nothing beyond the self-knowing mind itself. Absolute knowledge, accordingly, is mind knowing itself as mind." Unquote. I guess I'm with Kant on this one. Supposedly Hegel was concerned with the alienation that occurs when we think of ourselves as separate from the rest of the world. I beg to disagree. I haven't read much Hegel, but I find his ide idealism to be alienating in the extreme. If I were to take it seriously, I would be in the position of concluding that there is only me and nothing else is real. I'd be called upon to accept a world of desperate solitude, not to mention narcissism. I might as well give up the podcast right here if I'm just talking nonsense to myself. Although, sometimes that's what I feel I'm doing here. Before I go looking for a length of rope with which to end it all, I had better find another idealist to read about, someone with a nicer outlook. Let's go back to George Berkeley in the 18th century. Grayling writes, quote, Berkeley's philosophical view is often described as immaterialism, by which it is meant a denial of the existence of matter. But he also famously argued in support of three further theses. He argued for idealism, the thesis that mind constitutes the ultimate reality. He argued that the existence of things consists in their being perceived, esse est percipi. And he argued that the mind, which is the substance of the world, is a single infinite mind, in short, God, unquote. A little further on, he writes, quote, Thoughts, feelings, and imaginings exist only in the mind. But to also the idea of things, which remember our collections of ideas, the idea of an apple is a composite of ideas of the colors, shapes, and tastes that constitute it. So it is no less evident that the various sensations or ideas imprinted on the sense, however blended or combined together, cannot exist otherwise than in a mind perceiving them. From these claims, it follows that the gap between things and ideas vanishes, for if things are collections of qualities, and qualities are sensible ideas, and sensible ideas exist only in the mind, then what it is for a thing to exist is for it to be perceived." Unquote. The place where I disagree with idealism is the premise that things are collections of qualities. Qualities are characteristics of a thing, not the thing itself. There are physical qualities like mass and density, and there are what Berkeley means by sensible qualities, things sensed. I have argued that what we see is not the thing in the world, but a mental representation. Of course, what we perceive might not refer to something real, like what occurs in dreams and hallucinations. Further, what we perceive may not in any real sense resemble the thing which is referred to in the world. According to Grayling, Berkeley does not claim that there are no such things as tables and mountains. Rather, mind is implicated in their existence. I don't exactly agree, but at least Berkeley doesn't tempt me to kill myself. For the sake of a more complete analysis, let's examine one more idealist philosopher. Why not F.H. Bradley? Grayling writes, quote, Bradley argued that our ordinary way of thinking and talking about the world, and indeed the more sophisticated discourses of philosophers and scientists, contains internal contradictions which become apparent only when we try to make systematic sense of our experience. Revealing these contradictions obliges us to reject two commonplace assumptions, that there are many independently existing things in the world, and that they exist independently of our or anyone's knowing about anything about them. The first assumption is pluralism. The second is realism. Rejecting pluralism and realism together entails thinking of reality as a single complete whole, which he called the absolute. Reality as it is in itself, and as the all-inclusive totality of being." Unquote. 
Bradley talked about relations, external and internal. External relations are like one object sitting next to another. They do not affect the nature of what they describe. Internal relations are essential to making something what it is. A bit further on, Grayling continues, quote, Bradley's argument is that there are no external relations, and if that seems to imply that everything is internally related to everything else, one quickly sees that there cannot even be internal relations. This is because there are not many things in reality, but only one thing, namely everything, the absolute." Unquote. This is interesting. I could spend a lot of time meditating on this idea. It's as if there is a complete circle where realism and idealism as ends of a spectrum reunite in a singularity. Could it be just an aesthetic difference at that point in whether one adopts a realist or an idealist posture? My framework for consciousness is all about relations, specifically individual distinct subsystems in the brain's thalamic cortex are understood from the point of view of the whole system as meaningful contents. All the coexisting subsystems form a coherent picture from that uniting point of view. This is an advancement on having separate parallel networks that direct behavior because the whole forest can be appreciated from this larger perspective. Bradley is approaching reality on a deeper, more fundamental level, and I think it's worth taking seriously. If all of space and time and matter and energy is implicated in a single common system, our universe, wherein all the parts are ultimately entangled in a causal web, then reality might be best understood as fundamentally one thing. From a particular vantage point within that one thing, it could appear that there are pieces and parts, which indeed there are, but only from a point of view within the whole universe. I guess it comes down to what we mean by real. There really are pieces and parts, stars and planets, atoms and molecules, but perhaps they can be truly understood better as waves in a common fabric. Is a wave really a thing or not? The main thing I wanted to establish here is some sense of the view that consciousness is primary. At the very least, it comes first in the order of origins. Having taken a cursory look at idealism, let's switch gears and think about physicalism. Imagine a universe void of consciousness. The Big Bang Theory and the whole physicalist account of the universe sort of necessitates that our universe began that way. And our universe must have been without consciousness for billions of years. Perhaps consciousness was an inevitable development, and perhaps not, but here we are. In my opinion, we can't begin to talk about consciousness appearing in the universe until we have something like life in the universe. Consciousness could arise given a complex, non-living, integrated system, but outside of artificial systems, I think life is the only game in town. If the physicalist story is correct, then consciousness must have appeared after sufficiently complex life forms could evolve to exhibit it. There was a conversation between Sam Harris and Neil deGrasse Tyson recently on the Making Sense podcast. They got talking about the likelihood of life on other planets, and there was a part that struck me as new, something I hadn't realized about the origins of life on our planet. Tyson said, slightly paraphrased, quote, four out of the five top elements in the universe are contained in what we call biochemistry. If we were made of some exotic isotope of bismuth, you might have an argument to say God did something special on Earth because this stuff is not found anywhere else. If anything, life is opportunistic. It makes very good use of what it has. And one other fact, and it's not often cited, but it has to be in the equation. The earliest fossil evidence of life comes in around 3.8 billion years ago, and Earth began 4.5, 4.6. So for the longest while, 
decades, people subtracted those two numbers and said, all right, life took 600 million years. That's still pretty fast, given that we are four and a half billion years old. It's small compared to the life expectancy of Earth, but it's even better than that. Again, I'm value judging the speed of this because the early Earth was subjected to the period of heavy bombardment. There were two such periods. Heavy bombardment. The Earth is still, the polite way to say it is, accreting matter from the nascent solar system. The more violent way to put it is, it is being slammed constantly by comets and asteroids because it has a strong gravity in its region. It's clearing out its orbit and all that material going, uh, ends up going somewhere and it lands back on Earth. And so the Earth is gaining mass, and by gaining mass, it gains even more gravity. And over that time, Earth's surface is sufficiently pelted that the temperatures prevent the formation of complex molecules, because under high temperatures, the molecular bonds break, unquote. He goes on to point out that the real clock for the beginnings of life does not begin until much later. The real number is that life only took one to two hundred million years to get going on Earth. Granted, for most of our planet's history, life amounted to single-celled microorganisms. On Earth, consciousness might have appeared as early as a billion years ago, not before, and in all likelihood it was much more recently than that. One question I have, which I'd like to ask Neil deGrasse Tyson if I ever get the chance, is how early in the formation of galaxies and their star systems might the first planets have been stable enough to begin having the chemical processes necessary to start life? Is the Earth typical? Might we be early or late to the party? I really don't know. Nor does anyone know how frequently single-celled life forms make the evolutionary leap to multicellular plant-like or animal-like organisms. The universe is big, so even if this occurs as rarely as one in a million, it will still occur on millions and millions of planets. Notice that life in the universe represents an emergent complexity arising from the interactions of just a few basic ingredients. The Nobel Prize-winning physicist Frank Wilczek discussed this idea in his book Fundamentals. He wrote, quote, Let me emphasize again that the most important and remarkable point about our trinity of properties, mass, charge, and spin, is simply that there are so few of them. For any elementary particle, once you've specified the magnitude of those three things, together with its position and velocity, you've described it completely. How different it is for the objects of everyday life. Objects we commonly encounter have all kinds of properties, sizes, shapes, colors, smells, tastes, and many others. And when we describe a person, it is useful to specify their gender, age, personality, state of mind, and a host of other variables. All those properties of objects or people supply more or less independent pieces of information about them. No subset determines the rest. Evidently, there is a startling contrast between the stark simplicity of the basic ingredients and the complexity of the products they produce, just as Democritus suspected." Unquote. Notice what this means with regard to emergent properties. They are not rare occurrences. A bird or a tree or a planet or a star is not best described in reduced form as the sum of its subatomic particles. Indeed, a bird or a tree or a planet is a system of subatomic particles, but everything about their actual arrangement, everything we care about is emergent with respect to mass, charge, and spin. It's nothing exotic about consciousness to say it is an emergent property. Chemistry is emergent. Life is emergent. Given the premise that the physical universe comes first and life comes later when the conditions for biochemistry appear, consciousness could be an emergent property of some arrangement of matter. One refers to the miracle of life. One could further refer to the miracle of consciousness. Yet neither necessitates a miracle, since complex properties emerge routinely from simple constituents. That's the whole story of physics. 
Around 400 BC, Democritus said, By convention, sweet is sweet, bitter is bitter, hot is hot, cold is cold, color is color, but in truth there are only atoms in the void. Perhaps he was right. Now I will endeavor for my own interest to put Bradley's idealism in direct cognitive contact with Democritus's realism. Bradley suggests that there is in reality just one thing, the absolute. Democritus, by contrast, claimed that there are many, many things which he called atoms, the basic building blocks of everything. Can both be right? I think this depends on the idea of internal relations. From inside of space and time, where and when we find ourselves, it is clear that we can distinguish pieces and parts and processes unfolding. I'm reminded of the debate between the block universe and the existing present. In the book Your Brain is a Time Machine, Dean Buonamano discussed the ideas of eternalism and presentism. Eternalism is the view that the past and future are just as real as the present. They are literally just other locations in space-time. He said, quote, Presentism certainly conforms to our intuition that as each, at each instant of our lives transforms into a past moment, it is gone. Whether or not that moment leaves an imprint in our memory, the moment itself ceases to exist. Presentism also corroborates our feeling of control, that our decisions and actions shape an open future. Neuroscientists rarely have to grapple with the issue of presentism versus eternalism, but in practice, neuroscientists are imp implicitly presentists. They view the past, present, and future as fundamentally distinct, as the brain makes decisions in the present, based on memories of the past, to enhance our well-being in the future. But despite its intuitive appeal, presentism is the underdog theory in physics and philosophy." Unquote. Can we resolve the paradox that the universe is, at once, a singularity and a multiplicity? Consider a chemical reaction. We start with a beaker full of reagent 1, and we add some reagent 2. The formula yields product X. But when? There is a chemical process wherein molecules of reagent 1 react in some particular way with those of reagent 2. From inside the beaker, this takes place as a sequence of changes in time. In the end, we do indeed have product X. Product X is like the block universe. It's a finished product. Ultimately, matter is reducible to mass, charge, and spin. Subatomic particles come in opposite forms of these variables. Suppose that our universe consists of matter and energy whose total properties sum to zero. That is, there is just as much mass as antimass, just as much positive charge as negative charge. At the end of the day, our universe is a beaker whose product is nil. The beaker began with nothing, was shaken so vigorously as to temporarily form space and time, split the nothing into positives and negatives, ups and downs, and everything else in equal parts. As these contents settle, they recombine and cancel out, and the beaker comes to contain nothing once again. How could we describe such a thing? Do the particles exist or not? From inside the beaker, they certainly do. What about us? We are systems of matter and energy, of causality and time. Consciousness, like life, does not last forever. It is a process to be understood, not a thing to be found. Fundamentally, if physics can be reduced to one common fabric, of which all it contains are waves in a substrate, maybe everything will resolve into oneness. Even the most basic properties of mass and charge and spin will be reduced. Even they will have been temporary. Can time be temporary? The notion is completely circular. It seems to me that even if the universe reduces to a single absolute, we have a look from inside, from somewhere within it. 
Maybe the universe comes into being for a moment and falls back apart again. Yet while it exists, it is real. We are the universe awoken.